0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
2: The fishing industry has set up regulations to help protect species from overfishing.
3: But what are some of the consequences? It leads to consolidation in the fishery, which we've seen.
4: What I've seen is a reduction in the number of vessels and not an increase in the ecological output of the ecosystem. In fact, I don't know the last time we heard good news from the Gulf of Maine.
5: You know, the results are not all bad, contrary to what what some people say.
4: From
2: the New England News Collaborative,
5: this is next.
2: We'll learn about how fishery management has shaped every part of the industry, from ecosystems to small business owners. A new book explores the history of
6: a mill town from the point of view of everyday objects. You you often hear the old cliche, if walls could talk. (laughs) Well, now they can. And so be careful what you say. Plus, what we can learn from the life and death of Aaron Hernandez.
7: They're going into these sports and and they're putting their lives on the line. They didn't know that for a lot of years. They knew their knees were gone and their backs were gone. But they didn't know they were going to lose their minds as well. It's Next.
8: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
2: I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Aaron Hernandez would have turned 30 years old next week. He also could have been on his way to a Hall of Fame football career. Hernandez was born and raised in Bristol, Connecticut, not too far from the headquarters of sports giant ESPN, and he rose to fame as a tight end for the New England Patriots. But after just three seasons in the NFL, he was put on trial for multiple murders and sentenced to life in prison. And At 27 years old, Aaron Hernandez committed suicide at a correctional center in Massachusetts. Last year, a spotlight series from the Boston Globe explored his life, death, and legacy. It's called Gladiator, Aaron Hernandez, and Football, Inc., The series and podcast examine what his death can teach us about the football industry and the long-term effects of the sport on players' brains. Bob Holler is an investigative sports reporter for the Boston Globe and part of the team responsible for the series. Bob began by telling us about Aaron Hernandez, the football player.
7: From the very early age uh, that he first began playing football in uh, Bristol, Connecticut, he was a star and worked his way up into the University of Florida. He was a uh, Mackey Award winner as the best tight end in the country when he finished his, finished his junior year at uh, Florida. And the Patriots drafted him in the fourth round of the um, 2010 draft. He fell to the fourth round because he had character issues that he had developed in high school, the final years of high school and in um, college. But by the time he got to the uh, NFL, he was a spectacular player, and I went to the Super Bowl and caught a Super Bowl touchdown pass, which is every boy's dream, I guess
2: you, you talk about his hometown of Bristol, Connecticut. Tell us what his childhood was like there.
7: Well, this is one of the great surprises that that we discovered was you know we we knew the the, the sort of the narrative that uh, developed after his death was that um Aaron began to fall apart after his father died when he was sixteen as his, his father died unexpectedly of a bad medical problem after a standard uh, hernia surgery in Bristol. But the fact is that he didn't have a, a, an Ozzy Aussie, Aussie and Harriet life at all. His father was brutal, uh, beat him savagely as a child, and his father was homophobic. And uh, we've learned uh, also that uh, Aaron was really exploring his sexuality at a young age. By the sixth grade, he was involved with other boys, and his father was vehemently uh, Opposed to to all that, he didn't know it at the time. But even if Aaron uh, exhibited any kind of uh, you know feminine type of uh, instinct, he wanted at one point he wanted to be a cheerleader, which his father you know shot down immediately. So he's living in this in this world where he can't be himself. And not only that, he's living in fear. He's traumatized, also sexually molested as a child, at an early age, by the age of six. So these are traumas that nobody was aware of before we started this project, except, the, the, of course, the people who were the principals in, in this. And these are the things that can shape a person's life. And don't excuse any of the things that he, uh, he did in uh, the violent crimes he committed, but they certainly uh, help explain how he became, in some ways, how he did.
2: So he has a, a football career at the University of Florida. Analysts will say that he had character issues. What exactly did the character issues at the University of Florida mean?
7: He had seriously uh, involved in, uh, in marijuana, sort of a chronic marijuana smoker. He had only been sanctioned once down there, suspended once for it. But it was commonly known. And there also were concerns about his ties to the criminals back in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, on top of that, there was uh, within, within months of getting to Florida, when he should have still been in high school, he was in a bar in, in Gainesville and, and punched a bar manager so badly that he ruptured his eardrum, sort of sucker punched him over a, a minor bar tab dispute. Uh, later, he was uh, in a confrontation where one of his friends uh, had a chain ripped off, one of his college friends, now now an NFL player, Mike Pouncey, had his uh, gold chain ripped off. And soon after that, the person who they believed took the chain was shot or one of his associates was shot. So he's, he's on the fringe of this. He's not involved in it, but he's in the fringe of it. And so scouts realized that this guy had some problems, and that's why so many teams took, took a pass on him. I mean, he was—the the NFL teams had 112 chances to choose him in the draft, and none did until the Patriots took him with 113th.
2: And that's really one of the stories of the success of the New England Patriots. It's the ability to find the player in the fourth round who— fell out of favor for whatever reason. And of course the fact that he gets here to new England is the next part of the story. I actually want to play some tape from Greg Bedard who covered Hernandez as a football columnist for the Boston globe and sports illustrated. Here he is from the, uh, from the podcast. I think the worst thing to happen to Aaron Hernandez was that the Patriots drafted him. I think that this story turns out a lot differently. If he's say in Seattle or San Francisco or someplace just out of reach of Bristol, Connecticut. So, Bob, why is that?
7: Well, uh, it's echoed by his close friends, uh, some of his close friends, uh, childhood friends as well. I mean, because he was so close, I mean, he's a two-hour drive from all the turmoil and, and, the, and, and the criminal life there in, in Bristol that he was associated with, and those guys were, were around him all the time, and it's you know, it's not clear that they would have been with him if he was playing in San Francisco or Seattle or L.A., they were his running mates, and uh, those are the guys he got into serious trouble with. So uh, he he went to the Patriots, and, and, his, and after he had already been involved in the shooting of and, and the murder of two young men here in Boston, he went to the he went to the Patriots, the coach Bill Belichick, and said, "I, I want to go west. I, I want to go to a to a West Coast team. I want to get out of here. I, I or trade me or release me." And the Patriots said, "No, they had already invested forty one million dollars." in him over a long-term contract and with a $12.5 million signing bonus just uh, months earlier. So they, uh, the, you know, players are commodities in, in the NFL. They can be discarded easily. But if you're worth that kind of money, the team is going to be very reluctant to part with you. And in this case, he stayed involved with his buddies down in Bristol and, uh, and was with two of them when he murdered Odin Lloyd. So tell
2: us about that and tell us about what landed uh, Aaron Hernandez in jail.
7: So that was it. You know, we, we'll never know. This is um, the great mystery of a lot of this is the these these people were killed, those two young men, uh, Cape Verdean immigrants in Boston, and Odin Lloyd, a young football player, semi-pro football player here in Boston. They died for no reason, really. I mean, we've never really discovered any legitimate reason why Aaron Hernandez would be angry at these guys. You know, maybe a spilled drink here, maybe, maybe an insult there. Uh, and so... It's, it's, there's something wrong with him, <laughs> character wise. Is it, is it, was it the CTE that damaged his brain and, and affected his ability to reason, to, ha- to control his impulses, to control his rage? Or was it the way he was brought up? Was it the way his father said, you know, nobody disrespects you. Nobody, nobody tries you. You know, nobody challenges you. You step up and you take care of business. You, so you don't know. But for no good reason, three men died and he ended up in prison and, um, uh, we know what happened there. Before
2: his suicide, there's actually a really telling piece of tape that I want to play, and it says something about maybe his state of mind or what happens when he gets away from the life that caused him so many problems. He he seems to have found some peace in jail. Here's a clip from one of his phone calls in September of 2014.
4: You have to find inner peace to be happy. Nothing you do is going to make you happy. Nothing you get is going to make you happy. If you're not happy with happy inside, then you mean like You'll never be happy. Like just like just like me, like by having money, like I still was miserable. You mean having everything in the world, I still was miserable. I mean,
7: yeah, you know, we thought that uh, Aaron was was leading a double life, and he certainly was. He was, you know, a star football player at the same time, living this criminal uh, under underworld life as well. Uh, But he was living another life too, and that was the life of a of a person whose sexuality he had to hide from you know, the, the football players around him, the, you know, that culture just he never could be himself in that culture. Couldn't be that, couldn't be that way in prison. Couldn't be who he was in so many ways. So he was obviously deeply conflicted. I mean, he, he, his, he was devastated that his fiance found out that he was, you know, that sexuality wasn't what she thought it was. And, uh, and so he's tormented uh, inside. And again, none of this excuses what happened, but it, it does give a little more of explanation to it.
2: You mentioned CTE before, and this is another one of the potential explanations. CTE is this progressive degenerative condition that has been found in the brains of, of many football players now uh, who've sadly passed away. W- what can you tell us about CTE and Aaron Hernandez and what it, what it may have done to him?
7: Well, I know I've spent much of the last few years uh, writing about CTE and about uh, players who have been afflicted by it and their families and and the toll it takes not only on the players but those around them, uh, because they develop uh, very uh, radical changes behavior-wise. In some cases, Uh, you know, I've talked to the wives of players who died, and before they died, they, they, for many, many years, for most of their lives, were you know kind, gentle guys. I mean, of course, they're football players, but off the field. They're not, and yet, in the final months or years of their lives, they undergo changes and they become violent, you know, over nothing, and and eventually they they in some cases committed suicide at a, at a young age, and uh, very much like Aaron Hernandez did.
2: A uh, uh, last thing for you, Bob, at the end of the first episode of this podcast, you you have a reflection on whether or not your grandson should should play football after all that you've learned. Tell us more about that, and tell us about what you've thought about the sport that that you've covered now that you've learned so much about what it can do to people.
7: Well, it's been a, it's been a, a sort of a painful evolution in some ways. I grew up, uh, you know, loving the Patriots. I grew up. I'm um, a, a man of certain age that uh, I, I would follow them and watch them at Fenway Park and Harvard Stadium and Boston University before they had a home and. Uh, and uh, so I, I love those guys, and some of those guys I've seen since then, and I've talked to them since then, and players who played for the Patriots and the Super Bowls in nineteen eight and the nineteen eighty six, and I and the, some of those guys are so badly damaged their brains. They some of them can't. I mean, they can't find their way home. I know at least two guys who cannot find their way home sometimes because their brains are so badly damaged from the from playing football, and so. Sadly, I, you know, I, my son, my, my grandson uh, plays flag football now. He loves it. He's thrown a touchdown pass, and he wants to play, tackle football with his friends. And, you know, we, we, we collect trading cards together and play fantasy football together. But I just, it, honestly, I just don't see it. I, I can't imagine putting a kid into a gladiator sport at that, that young age. I think I'm not alone. I think it's throughout American culture now. People are rethinking uh, what, what age people should, you know, young children should play football.
2: Bob Huller is an investigative sports reporter for the Boston Globe and part of the team responsible for the Spotlight Series, Gladiator, Aaron Hernandez, and Football, Inc. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
7: Thanks a lot, John.
2: You can find a link to the full series about Aaron Hernandez at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, how regulations meant to protect fish are hurting small-scale fishermen. It's next.
8: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
2: The waters around New England once teemed with cod, but the story for the last few decades has been one of overfishing and decline. In 2010, a new set of regulations were put in place that were designed to protect the fish that were left, but these regulations have made it hard for small-scale fishermen to make a living. Producer Matt Frasica introduces us to one of them in his podcast, The Briny. His story explores the
1: unintended consequences of
2: conservation. Here's Matt.
9: Watch your step, get on.
1: Earlier this year, I met this fisherman in Maine named Tim Ryder.
9: A little noisy in here, but this is Finlander one We've got the engine running. Just charging the batteries, getting ready to do what we do. i shut it off so you can actually hear a little bit here.
1: Tim's a tall, athletic-looking guy in his 40s. His boat, the Finlander 1, is small for a commercial fishing boat.
9: This is a 36 Northern Bay, so it's 36 by, I think, 13 feet wide at the, at the widest part. And this is powered by 375... Horse John Deere, so we cruise at like 16, 17 knots, which is quick for a commercial boat.
1: That speed lets him get to good fishing spots far offshore.
9: Most important part right here? Yeah. Here's six, uh, love right You <laughs> would here. die. Oh yeah, a little Cinderella right here. <laughs> so this is how we roll out over here. Totally. Sunrise, beautiful sunrise, nothing like some 80s hair music to go with it. I love it.
1: But when the weather kicks up in the North Atlantic, being out in that little boat is not the safest.
9: Yeah, I mean the last, the last trip we went out, it was, uh, boy, it was a white knuckle ride. In, you know, boats are boats and they're not surfboards. And my little boat was doing 23 knots with no throttle coming down a wave, with very little control, and that's actually a dangerous situation because if you put the, you put the nose of the, the bow of the boat into the next wave. You'll go ask kettle over backwards.
1: His business is a super small operation. Just a few people going out to catch fish.
9: We catch cod, pollock, haddock, cusk on rod and reel, uh, all by hand.
1: He recently added another boat, Finlander 2, that catches different species with a net. But for the past few years, all the fish he's caught has been with rod and reel. But even still, Tim manages to bring in a lot of fish.
9: This is our office. This boat caught... 200-ish thousand pounds of fish this year.
1: And all those fish get treated on the boat.
9: We bleed our fish right away. We brine our fish. We get a really nice, colorful fish that's like super chilled right through. Those fish are on our customer's plate 24 to 48 hours after swimming around.
1: Most fishing boats in New England are bigger. They go out for longer. So the fish they bring back has been on ice for a while. Weeks, sometimes. Tim and his employees run their own distribution company called New England Fishmongers that brings their fish directly to high-end restaurants. Those restaurants pay a bit more for Tim's fish because it's so fresh, and because they know they're getting super local fish caught by this sort of artisanal process.
9: That kind of freshness is unparalleled.
1: That's Evan Mallet, a chef who owns a couple of fancy restaurants in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Belfast, Maine. Evan says the fish he gets from Tim is better than anything he can get from a larger distributor.
8: The way
9: that the fish on that boat is handled not only ensures a higher quality, but enhances the shelf life of that fish in my restaurant.
1: Like a lot of small business owners, Tim struggles to make the financial side work. He catches a lot of fish, it's not that. And he's got plenty of customers willing to pay for his premium product. The problem is, he has to pay someone else for every fish he catches. To understand why, you have to back up to 1976 and the law that governs fishing in the United States, the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act.
4: We call it the Fish Bill because half of us don't remember the name.
1: That's Niaz Dori.
4: My name is Niaz Dory. I'm the coordinating director for Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance.
1: Before 1976, most fishermen in the U.S. were small-scale operators like Tim and they were having trouble competing with big industrial fishing operations coming from overseas. But Magnuson Stevens, or the fish bill, or whatever you want to call it, changed that. The bill closed U.S. waters to foreign fishing boats and encouraged U.S. fishermen to invest in bigger, more efficient boats that could catch more and more fish. Paul Molyneux watched all this happen firsthand. He's an author and former commercial fisherman. And Paul got started fishing just as magnuson stevens was going into effect in
10: 1977 there was a new boat being launched in the northeast every 4 days so it was perfect time to for a guy coming from the suburbs of philadelphia to get into the fishing business because you know they were taking anyone and that's basically you know and i'd lied my way aboard you've been fishing yeah <laughs> you know yeah with my grandfather in a pond <laughs> Paul loved fishing,
1: but he didn't like what he saw on the big draggers, fishing boats that used trawl nets to catch pretty much anything in their path.
10: So we, we got into hake that were just on the margin of being, you know, market size. And we were bringing over huge bags of hake and throwing like half of it overboard. And just floating around the boat, just like, just was carpeted with them. And I thought, you know, this is not. Uh, this doesn't
1: make any sense. What Paul was seeing wasn't an isolated incident. Destructive and wasteful fishing methods were becoming regular practice.
4: We provided loans to fishermen to scale up without knowing what the ecological boundaries are going to be. All this industrialization has brought this ecosystem to a place where it's in danger.
1: But Magnus and Stevens also set up regional councils made up of fishermen scientists and regulators.
4: And these regional councils essentially develop what the management uh, schemes are going to be.
1: The councils set the rules and limits on fishing activity. But by the mid-2000s, it was clear that the rules weren't working.
4: What's often known as the tragedy of the commons. If you've got this big pool of stuff and everybody wants to go after it, how do you manage that?
1: In 2010, the New England Council put in place a new set of regulations, This new system gets called the sector system. In the sector system, scientists and regulators decide the sustainable catch for each species. Every year, they say, you can catch this many million pounds of haddock, this many million pounds of cod, flounder, whatever. And then each fisherman gets a fraction of that total. That's their catch share.
4: It's kind of... This cap-and-trade approach.
1: Cap-and-trade like the U.S. does for some kinds of pollution. There's a cap on the total amount, but fishermen can trade their share of the total among themselves. The idea is that if you as a fisherman own a 1% stake in the flounder stock, you'll want that stock to grow so that you can catch more fish.
5: Ownership promotes stewardship.
1: That's Seth Masinko.
5: So they think if you own it, you'll take care of it.
1: He studies fisheries law and management at the University of Rhode Island. And he is not a fan of the sector system.
5: People in New England just didn't know what they were getting into.
1: Professor Masinko has studied fisheries regulations like this around the world. And he says some of them work well, and some of them work not so well.
5: And then all the, you know, the results are not all bad, contrary to what, you know, what some people say. Um, but the results, both good and bad, are, are predictable.
1: First of all, go back to the part about each fisherman having a share of the total catch. How do you decide how to divvy up those shares? In New England, the council debated it for a long time, and this is what they came up with. The size of your share was based on how much fish you brought in historically. And that tends to favor the big operators who are responsible for overfishing in the first place.
4: When quotas under these catch shares are assigned to those who caught the most... Those small-scale folks are going to get the small piece of the pie, but the small-scale folks and the medium-scale folks have a much smaller ecological footprint than the larger folks have had.
10: Whoever had the most invested in the fishery and caught the most fish got the most fish. So the ones who had done the most damage got rewarded the most.
1: The share of the catch each fisherman got was based on what they caught between the years 1996 and 2006. How do they choose those years?
5: It's always a rigged game picking the, the qualifying years. It, it, this, if this is a totally arbitrary and political decision.
3: It leads to consolidation in the fishery, which we've seen. Pat Shepard
1: is the manager of Tim Ryder's sector, which means he
3: takes care of the paperwork for the fishermen the small scale guys uh, can't afford to operate in the fishery so they, they either sell their permits to uh, one of the larger scale operators who has deep enough pockets to buy it um, or they just surrender it.
1: The number of active ground fish boats in New England has gone down, way down. From 571 boats in 2009 before sectors were introduced to 307 in 2014 the last year data are available for. That's a 46% drop over five years. And that consolidation has hit small-scale fishermen the hardest. That brings us back to Tim Ryder. In
9: 1996, I was running cross-country and track and field for the University of New Mexico, Um, and we joke about it. Amanda Parks, who works the business with me, I think she was three.
1: So Tim, because he doesn't have any history, he has to pay other fishermen for their share of the catch.
9: If you don't have enough quota you have to go and lease it from someone that does, that's not fishing, that's not using those fish.
1: The price of quota varies depending on the total cap that regulators put in place for that species. So, for example, cod. That's one of the species that was hit hardest by industrial fishing, and it hasn't rebounded. So the total cap for everyone is low. And if there isn't much to go around, that means buying a share of that catch is not going to be cheap.
9: This is like a stock market, right? So when there's not a lot of something or it's in high demand, what does it do? It goes up in price. So cod is leasing 3 to $4 a pound right now. Cod sells on the open market for less than $3 a pound. We like to call that a choke species. So basically, if you catch cod, you lose money.
1: You If you can only sell the fish for less than $3 a pound, why why would anybody pay more than $3 for the permission to lease it? Like, what what... Yeah, how does that
9: that get set? You have to have, you can't leave the dock without having some allocation of cod, because they know you're going to catch cod.
1: Even if you're avoiding cod, you put out a net in the ocean, you can't control which fish are going to swim into it. You can try, based on the depth and what part of the ocean you're in, but you can never be certain. So that means every time a fisherman like Tim leaves the dock, he has to have quota for cod so that when he pulls his net up and he's caught one, he won't be breaking the law. But the high cost of quota creates a perverse incentive. Here is Ben Martens, the executive director of the
11: Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. So if you go out fishing and you're going to be targeting pollock or haddock, and you're catching cod as a piece of that day out on the water, there's no incentive for you to land it. And in fact, there's an incentive for you to throw it back into the ocean.
1: Throwing dead fish back in the ocean is called discarding, and it's against the rules. So no one will admit to doing it. But everybody I talk to acknowledges that it happens.
9: You know, large cod are like three ish bucks, market cod or medium sized cod are two dollars, smaller ones are less than two bucks. What are you going to keep? If you don't have an observer, you're kicking the little stuff over and keeping large cod. You never see very much small cod on the auction, they just disappear, they don't exist.
1: The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration puts observers on fishing boats to try to discourage
11: rule-breaking, or at least to document it. They take that data and extrapolate it out amongst the fleet to determine how many fish are going back into the ocean. But only
1: 15% of fishing trips actually get an observer.
11: 15% is just way too low of a number to get accurate data. And all of the, the research that's being done right now is showing that There's major bias effects that are taking place on those trips versus others.
1: The sector system has been in place for eight years now. So has it succeeded in protecting vulnerable fish stocks? According to NOAA, the results are mixed. Some types of fish that had been in decline before sectors are starting to come back, like haddock and redfish. But others aren't doing so well, like cod. Cod stocks have actually declined Since sectors were introduced,
4: what I've seen is a reduction in the number of vessels and not an increase in the ecological output of the ecosystem. In fact, I don't know the last time we heard good news from the Gulf of Maine. Uh, What we hear all the time is we need to cut back, we need to cut back, we need to cut back. And so um, to me, it hasn't worked.
1: None of this is new. Cod stocks have been on the decline in New England since the 1980s, and the causes are complex from a decline in the kinds of fish cod like to eat to climate change. And consolidation first got going back when the cod stocks began to crash. Still, critics of the sector system say there should have been caps on the total amount of the catch that any one fisherman can own.
5: They had the opportunity to put controls on this program. So, for example, in Alaska, they have a 1% cap on ownership in the halibut fishery. At the time, they laughed about the Alaskans doing this. Now, the Alaska program looks like the poster child for socially responsible catch shares. But but in New England, they, they elected not to do anything.
3: For me, it's all about scale.
1: Pat Shepard again, the manager of Tim Ryder's sector.
3: You keep it small scale, you reduce the impact to the environment, you can still catch fish, um, and 10 small-scale boats... Uh, Provide for many more families than one huge boat.
1: Ten small scale boats also contribute to their local economies. Towns up and down the coast have felt the economic effects of the dwindling New England fishing fleet.
5: The effect on communities can, in some cases, be even more devastating than the effect on individuals because individuals can move. So you, you you get consolidated, you're, you're out of the industry. Well, you know, the theory always was that you would move and you'd you know, go to Dayton and make tires and the United States would be better off. Communities don't move. So communities get stranded by consolidation. So
9: when I come in here, I spend my money at Jackson's Hardware, Kittery. Tim Ryder. <laughs> you know, we get, I grab a sandwich down the street from a local sandwich store. I get my fuel here at the marina from Butch. And we try to get what we can locally because it's where we live.
1: Buying local might also be the answer for keeping small-scale fishermen afloat.
3: In America, I think we've gotten really lazy about our food. We want it prepackaged. We want it portioned. We want it vacuum-sealed, frozen. Uh, We want a YouTube video to show us how to cook it. How many people do you know that will butcher a whole fish at home? We need to get back to that going to meet a boat at the dock, getting a couple of fresh fish off of them. And uh, that's what will secure a fair price for the fishermen that are, that are catching our seafood. And uh, it'll, it'll connect us a lot better to what we're eating because we know where it came from.
1: Tim Ryder knows that there needs to be limits in place to protect the health of the fish stocks. But the way the sector system was set up, it favors big operators who were active decades ago. The way Tim sees it, that means in order to fish, he has to pay someone else not to fish.
9: A permit that we lease most of our fish off this year, uh, we paid that individual over $75,000 for not fishing. It, it's a fail for a small business owner. I'll tell you right now, like we, it's a fail. Basically, the old people that are leasing fish need to get out of the way and let someone else do the job.
2: This piece was produced by Matt Frasica for his podcast, The Briny, which explores stories from the ocean. Coming up, paddling a polluted river and an old factory building comes to life. It's next.
8: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: The Quinnipiac River flows about 40 miles from central Connecticut into Long Island Sound. Its pathway winds through some of the state's deepest pockets of pollution. For decades, 19th century factories and densely populated towns poured sewage and industrial waste into the river. But recent history has been kinder to the Quinnipiac. Conservation and environmental laws have boosted water quality, and fish and other wildlife have slowly returned. Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill paddled the Quinnipiac River with a biologist to take a closer
11: look. My life vest is zipped. Our paddles are ready, and Pete Picone, okay. my guide for today, is ready to cast off. With a push, our canoe begins its journey down the river. We float down a canyon of trees, paddling through columns of dappled light. Pecone is on the lookout for wildlife:
12: Now that bird there is a great crested flycatcher. Weep, weep. That one is a cavity nester.
11: Above us fly Baltimore Orioles. We see the wings of a great blue heron fan out before us as it shoots skyward, and all along the riverbank is another bird, the spotted sandpiper.
12: They're they're a very identifiable bird. Yeah, there's one right there, right there. That was his call, did you hear it? There it is, right there.
11: For a long time, wildlife on the Quinnipiac was virtually non-existent. Pollution from industry in the 19th and 20th centuries killed off fish and chased away birds.
12: And if there's a river that needs, you know, help and attention, it's this river.
11: But there was an upside. In the 1800s, that pollution inspired some of Connecticut's first environmental laws. And over the next century, regulation and litigation helped to clean up the river. Most recently, funding work that wrapped up this spring to remove old dams and water pipes from the river. You know, it's had a lot of challenges, and it's on its
12: comeback, you know, and it's, we don't want to lose that comeback. We want it to get stronger and better.
11: Conservationists say those removals open the river to migratory fish like American shad and river herring for the first time in 150 years. Today, Pecan paddles our canoe through branches and navigates around woody snags. Well, we have to be careful because there's some shallow logs. In the canoe is a hacksaw, just in case we get stuck and need to cut our way out. But today, we've been lucky. Even though there are some downed trees, we pass right on through. The river's been very friendly to us, I'll tell you. Around a bend, our canoe finds itself enveloped in a field of floating white downy puffballs. For a few seconds, it feels totally alien. Countless translucent speckles hovering and scattering light all around us.
12: That's the uh, seed of the cottonwood tree, which cottonwoods are very common along the floodplains. This is the time of the year that it produces its seed, and uh, that's what you're seeing.
11: Overhanging shrubs cling to nearby riverbanks, it's silky dogwood, a plant that's a great hiding spot for wood ducks and muskrats. For Pecone, the river's mystery and variety is its charm. You know, you're, you're, you're on your own. You're, you're doing your own thing. You're enjoying nature.
12: You're, it's an adventure that every bend has something new, different.
11: A few minutes later, our journey ends. We carefully take out our canoe, but as we walk, the river has one more surprise for us.
12: Right there. Yeah, right there. That is a bald eagle right there. Wow. Awesome. Look at that. That is special, man. Wow.
11: The eagle dives, powerful and fast, Welcome back by a river that's slowly returning to the way it was long before we got here. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Many polluted rivers in New England are making a comeback, and so are some of the old
2: mills that polluted them in the first place. They're being turned into high-end lofts, artist spaces, and modernized manufacturing sites. It's this history and transformation that David Leff explores in a book of poetry called The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Milltown*. Leff is no stranger to this issue. He's the former deputy commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, and he's lived for 30 years in one of these mill towns
6: where manufacturing is long gone, but the mill buildings still loom over the town. Old Mill Villages have always been a fascination for me. I think they have incredible stories to tell uh, both in terms of the larger black letter history that we read in history books and the history of individuals and families. They're very compelling sites.
2: Why did you choose to tell the story uh, through the lens of of everyday objects uh, a lava lamp, a typewriter, an umbrella—just things found.
6: What I wanted to do is is jumpstart people's thinking by coming up with a different way of presenting that material that would then kind of open the gates of understanding. That would enable them to see what we take for granted in a in a new way. And so I came up with why not the objects? You know, you often hear the old cliche. If walls could talk, well, <laughs> now they can. And so be careful what you say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the walls are listening. They may be. So the people get a sense of, of what exactly this sounds like. Maybe you can do a, a brief reading from the book. Do you have something for us? Sure, sure. Um,
6: I'm going to read a, uh, a poem about the wood stove in back of the local hardware store. Harold Oak Stove, number 16. Paunchy middle-aged guys better not call me pot-bellied. I'm cylindrical. Over five feet tall from leg to shiny nickel finial. Made by O.G. Thomas of Taunton, Mass., I've a goodly 16-inch firepot. Been back of Rockwood Falls hardware since Christ was a corporal. Old-timers gather round to smoke and swap lies even in summer, though there are more when I'm stoked to ward off the cold. A few pull up an old nail keg, but most stand on the squeaky hardwood floor, talking with their hands as sure as their voices. Always been weather and sports, a few laughs. Never seen nothing like the resentment over the factory, glowing hotter than any cherry coal I ever held. Some say it's fickle markets or foreign exchange rates what killed the company. You got your conspiracy types and backseat drivers who knew Jenkins should have bought Merriam's steel box or that little eyelet company over Waterbury Way making drawn metal lamp parts. Then there's the Monday morning quarterbacks whose 2020 hindsight saw statistical process control, computer-aided design, or a continuous wire casting machine as saviors. Ever heard none of it before? Now everyone's an Edison.
2: I love the fact that uh, he's made in Taunton Mass for some reason.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, it it just seemed like the perfect stove to have uh, you know, another New England manufacturing town and that's, you know, that's they traded all, you know, they they had one product and they were known for that product, but they bought other products to make what they what they produced.
2: One of the things that you're grappling with, of course, is is a more current issue at so many of these mills and something that you grappled with when you worked at the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, environmental concerns like contamination in groundwater, cancer clusters. The, the wife of a factory owner poses an interesting question in your book. She asks, how do you comply with regulations that didn't exist in the 1950s and the 1970s? And it, it is an important question to ask. That said, there, there is some thought that, that people perhaps should have known better. How, how, how do you think about that well,
6: question? It, it it it's a It is a reasonable question and it's a very hard one to answer you know they you could follow all the rules and still wind up with contaminated groundwater because the the both the public the government and industry perception were was very different doesn't mean that there shouldn't be responsibility for those who benefited uh but uh, that's a very reasonable question for someone to ask but there just – there simply was not the consciousness of this. Now, you might say, well, they should have known better Uh, but, um, you know, it's it's hard for us with the knowledge that we have now about contamination and parts per billion for God's sake to really judge those who came earlier even though they have to be held responsible.
2: David Leff is former deputy commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Environmental Protection. He's the author of several books, but also this new one, The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Milltown. David, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Matt Lorenz knows something about making the most of old things. He's a touring musician from western Massachusetts who surrounds himself with homemade gadgets and gizmos. It's part of what makes his unique sound as the one-man band The Suitcase Junket. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown introduces us to this old-fashioned troubadour.
0: To say Matt Lorenz doesn't like to waste things is an understatement. He takes old guitar frets and hammers them into earrings. He converted a box of junk into an instrument.
13: It's a, basically an old cheese box that I had full of bones and silverware. The bottom symbol is the wooden box. The top symbol is all these objects hanging off of an old 8mm film reel.
0: On stage, Lorenz wears ratty yellow loafers he got used 15 years ago, and his guitar he found in a dumpster.
13: It had this weird, buzzy, growly sound. It only sounded good in an open tuning, and I, you know, sort of fell in love with the limitations of
0: it. In short, Matt Lorenz is highly resourceful in music and in life. I met him at his farmhouse in Leverett, Massachusetts. He was on break from touring, putting logs into an outdoor oven so he could boil sap into maple syrup.
13: You keep a boil going, so you feed the fire from this side, and it's, it's fierce right now.
0: But despite his bohemian setup, Lorenz is no ragtag indie musician. He's signed with Northampton record label Signature Sounds, plays about 200 gigs a year, has a publicist, a booking agent. He's just released his seventh album called Mean Dog Trampoline. Yet even that is a product of his offbeat recycling methods, including lyrics that came from a homebuyer's workshop he once attended.
13: I found notes from it, and they were completely incoherent. It, you know, it looked like I was mostly drawing little imaginary creatures and writing down the occasional word, you know, without any reference points on the page.
14: Dangerous sanitation, leaky windows, and lawns.
13: But being someone who doesn't like to see things go to waste, even, you know, my own idiot (laughs) scribblings, I scraped them together into a tune. But the mean dog and the trampoline, which is sort of the chorus of that song, are two things that insurance companies apparently really don't like you to have.
0: Lorenz has been making music since he was a child in southern Vermont taking piano, violin, and saxophone lessons. At Hampshire College, he created a major around experimental music. He spent a few years working on farms, painting houses, and playing in bands on the side. By 2009, he was making a living as a solo performer. (laughs) His latest incarnation is called the Suitcase Junket, a nod to his sentimental collection of old suitcases. Lorenz is the junket, a one-man band who strums a guitar while sitting at a large contraption of homemade and traditional instruments. He's not exactly sure how to describe the musical style of the suitcase junket, though he tries.
13: I call it swamp Yankee music.
0: The swamp being a place, he says, where some things go to decompose and other things come to life. His music has hints of southern rock and soul, as might be played by what he calls a northern swamp person.
13: Sort of like independent, a little bit grumpy, but, you know, throws a good party. You know, like likes, likes people around a couple times a year, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just describing myself.
0: Even so, he does write a lot about relationships, including in his new song, Everything I Like.
13: Like a lot of songs, it ends up having sort of themes of love and not being able to to communicate with the the person you love and this sort of like confusion and mystification that is people knowing each other.
0: These days, he spends a lot of time alone. At first, becoming a one-man band was a financial decision. It was expensive to pay travel costs for a full band. Then he grew to like performing solo.
13: I think it helped me grow as a musician and a performer a lot faster, having no one to lean on, you know, having, being up there. Okay, you have to tune right now. Are you going to say something? Best try to make it, you know, interesting or humorous or something. And also that idea that partway through a song, you could decide to play it differently and, you know, you wouldn't have a band, you know, (laughs) throwing their hands in the air. Like, well, what's, what's this guy up to again?
14: Alright, you were Alright, you I make you feel good and it I make you feel better
0: I show you my weakness I show you my one challenge of a one-man band is not coming across as a gimmick
13: It's like it's hokey just sometimes it's just saying one-man band you're like it, it, make, it can you can see people cringe a little bit. The reason it has that reputation is because you get people who don't they aren't necessarily saying anything they're just making a bunch of noise and fair enough. I you know, like to think that I'm saying things as well as making a bunch of noise.
0: And sometimes, for what he calls a musical palate cleanser, he'll step out from behind his contraption and play acoustic guitar. He'll often close the night with an Irish-style ballad he wrote, Red Flannel Rose.
14: I was cold and I was hungry. I was feeling pretty good. And the fabric of the place Was just starting to show That's when I met her My red flannel road.
13: And it's a, a really nice moment Because it is this kind of Everything is, is stripped away, you know? It's like, and then there's also Just a song in a room
14: Side She's never blind. There's a spot in my heart Where not much anything grows now sprout,
0: red, roll. Matt Lorenz, the Suitcase Junket, is touring with his new album, Mean Dog Trampoline, until next February, when he takes a break for maple syrup season. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown.
14: Everyone left it us oh, Everyone left it us Like we were so-
2: You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Tularsky. Music this week by Todd Merrill. Goodnight Blue Moon, Binger, and Dave Richardson. I'm John Dankosky. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio. New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.